Welcome back to another episode of Agile Way podcast, where we explore challenges organizations face on their Agile journey. How to become great Scrum Master, how to change your leadership style, or how to embrace agility at the organization level. I'm Suzy Shukova, Agile coach, certified Scrum trainer, and author of the great Scrum Master book and Agile leader book, and I'm your host for this podcast. I'm passionate about business agility, organizational culture, and Agile leadership, and that was the reason why I decided to start this podcast, to share with you my experiences and stories from my Agile journey. Welcome here in this Agile Way podcast. It's my pleasure to have Roman Fischler here. He's been around product ownership for a long time. He's one of my personal gurus in that space. When I don't know something from Agile product ownership, I always search his website, so and blogs and tools, etc. So I thought it would be a great idea to invite Roman here and have a chat with him about how to be a great product owner or what does that product ownership mean about. So maybe, what's your background? Where did you start it? Uh, where did I start? So thank you for the for the kind intro- introduction, Susie, and the, the kind words, and uh, lovely to be with you. Uh, how did I start out? Well, um, I sort of started out, I guess, as a, well, I guess, I started out as a software developer, that much I can remember still, <laughs> and then stumbled into product management. And the first time I was working, in product management and with product managers was in, was in 2001. Uh, and interesting enough, it was a healthcare organization and um, we uh, were called in to help out with a new product development initiative, um, a new product. And um, we thought in order to help the organization, we'll introduce extreme programming, which was sort of, you know, uh, well-intended, but I don't think any of us had a, a lot of experience in introducing agile practices, agile frameworks and organizations. So ultimately it wasn't very successful. But I ended up working with the product management team, trying to help people understand how they would fit into this brave new agile world and um, how they could maybe um, move away from specifying everything up front to um, adopt a more iterative incremental style of working and actually take advantage of it. So that was, uh, that was really exciting for me and, and a great learning opportunity. Great. So can you share a little bit more about like, what does that mean to be a product owner? What does it mean to be a product owner? So, um, you know, I find that uh, Ken Schwaber, who is one of the um, creators of the Scrum framework, and, and so the Scrum Scrum is the framework uh, in which the product owner role uh, originated uh, in or from <laughs> that gave birth to the product owner role. And so I think Ken Schwaber's done a really nice job, uh, generally speaking, to find meaningful terms and so when I think about the term product owner, then I find it's rather self-explanatory. Um, product owner means somebody who owns the product. And maybe I should say somebody who owns the product on behalf of the company, uh, the organization that develops and provides it. That, of course, then kind of leads on to two more questions. Um, what is a product and what, what does it mean to own such an asset? And uh, Interesting enough, the uh, the first question I find isn't always easy to answer, particularly for larger established uh, companies. So I, I found quite a few organizations, in fact, most organizations I've worked for and with had a certain level of confusion of what a product is, certainly what a digital product is. 
And um, for a long time, the Scrum framework didn't offer any uh, definition, as far as I'm aware of. And I think the most recent uh, Scrum guide actually uh, now suggests uh, what a product might be. And sort of my take on what a product is has been for, for quite a few years that um, it's something, it's an asset that uh, creates value for a group of people, uh, users and possibly customers and the business at the same time. And I'd add that it largely has to do that on its own. So you could say a product is a value creating vehicle. And for me, that's really the first thing to watch out for that, you know, uh, when we talk about product ownership and we talk about product owners, then it's really about owning that product, that value creating entity. So something that truly creates value, it might be an internal product, a technical product, a supporting product, like a platform. It might be an end user facing product. It might be a revenue generating product. Uh, so think um, um, we're using Zoom, right, to record this podcast. So that might be in it. That will be an example of an end user facing revenue generating product. And or it might be something like an online retailer's website, which would again be end user facing, but not uh, generate um, revenue directly, but but rather indirectly. Um, but, you know, it has to be that value creating entity. And then the second part is about um, what it means to to own a, a product. Oh, I should should go back. Apologies and say, um, sorry. <laughs> too, too eager to move on to the second element of the um, compound noun. Uh, why is it so important to be clear on what a product is? Well, many product owners I've met over the years owned more or less than a product. So I've met people who actually owned a collection of products, a product portfolio. So a typical example of a product portfolio might be Microsoft Office. So like say Word, a PowerPoint and Excel in it. And I've met quite a few product owners who actually owned less. Um, so more like a feature, um, part of a product and end user facing product capability or something like an architecture building block, like a, a service or a collection of services or a component. And while, you know, often those individuals are referred to as product owners. Uh, over the years, I found that can create a lot of confusion. And so I prefer then to call those roles feature owner and component owner and product portfolio owner. And that's not meant to be derogative or judgmental in any way. And it can be um, challenging and it can be exciting to work as a feature owner. And it can be uh, equally challenging and exciting to work as a component owner. But I think the uh, ultimate responsibility of somebody who owns part of a product is different from somebody who is the overall product owner. So if I own, say, search and navigation on an online retailer's uh, website, assuming that that's a, a feature, then my job will be to optimize that specific capability and maximize its value. Whereas the job of the overarching product owner will be to maximize the value that the entire website generates. And so, you know, that requires different skills. Um, it also then uh, requires people to carry out different tasks. So I think it's important to, uh, to be clear on this, and it can be very helpful to use the right terms. But I've already talked a long time now. Sorry, Susie, I'm, I'm sort of moved into kind of teaching mode. <laughs> Oh, that's cool. It was good to listen. And what you just said is very often a problem by its own because I've seen so many organizations having those feature owners or component owners and uh, mm -hmm. then don't really understand the, the real product ownership. So what are the skills this real product owner, the overall product owner need to have? Well, the skills that uh, the real product owner has to have. Well, I like to think of the, the real product owner. <laughs> the person who owns the product uh, in, in its entirety um, 
as, as somebody who's not only responsible for the more tactical product decisions and the product details that are typically captured in the product backlog, certainly in an agile context, right? But also for the more strategic product decisions around, uh, well, the product strategy. So uh, the value that the product should create, the specific value it should create for the users and customers and for the business. Um, the market that the product should serve, so who the customers and users are and what makes the product stand out. But then also to translate these high-level uh, strategic um, objectives into more tangible, intermediate, um, actionable goals, product goals that I would then capture on a product roadmap. Um, so I'd expect that uh, somebody who can be an effective product owner is an effective product owner, has the necessary strategic skills and has the necessary tactical skills. Um, so these are the, sort of the core hard skills that I'd be, be looking for. Um, and, you know, you might include things like when it comes to the strategic hard skills around um, the product lifecycle and lifecycle management or business modeling and financial forecasting, generally understanding product discovery and market and user research techniques. Um, and when it comes to the, the tactical skills, things like uh, creating user models or personas and, um, say, working with user stories and epics or... Um, testing out ideas for new features and feature enhancements and knowing how to run the product demo or usability test and how to work with A-B tests, for instance. But what, what, I've, what I've found over the years is that these hard skills are uh, super helpful, um, but they're not quite enough. And so I think for, for product owners, um, having the right interpersonal skills, the right people skills, or I, I sometimes like to call them leadership skills, I think is, uh, is, is at least as important. And I think the reason for that is that product owners lack transactional power. So um, product owners don't, aren't any, any line managers typically, right? So product owners typically can't tell the stakeholders or the development teams or team members what to do. But at the same time, product owners rely on the goodwill and the work of those individuals in order to progress the product and ultimately make the product successful. And uh, so, so I think it's really important to then uh, be able to earn people's trust and empathize with people so that people are willing to listen to um, the views and ideas and suggestions and the advice of the product owner and so that the product owner can influence and guide the individuals in an effective way. And so specific practices that help with this are things like active listening, um, collaborative decision-making, so being able to make decisions together with a group of uh, stakeholders and development team members. Um, maybe a little bit of negotiation, a goal setting, I think is super important. Um, so um, being able to establish shared goals that people understand and support and work towards. Um, and that might be a product goal. It might be, might be a sprint goal, for instance. So yeah, those are some, some sample soft skills. And so the ideal, ideal product owner <laughs> then has uh, appropriate soft skills, uh, leadership, people skills, and, and, and those uh, strategic and those, those tactical skills, which, of course, I know, you know, is, is sort of um, putting the bar rather high, as they say. Well, there is nothing wrong on putting the bar high, right? That's always good, because then you see where you can improve. What's the critical right. things? If you're really looking for a product owner in your company, what's like must-have? What's the must-have? So I think things around um, being willing to listen and empathize, but at the same time, not shying away from making decisions, uh, for me, would be crucial. I mean, it's nice when an individual has some of the hard skills and, and also sort of understands the organization, understands generally the, the industry that you're in, 
the markets, um, maybe has had some exposure to users and customers. But I think I'd probably be looking for some of those crucial interpersonal skills as the most important ones. I mean, we all have them, but you know, we, we differ and people, individuals differ uh, with regards to the extent to which those skills are, have been developed. And I think somebody who has those, those good interpersonal skills, who can build trust, can build meaningful connections, can kind of bring people together has a real advantage over somebody who lacks that and has to kind of really develop those skills, cultivate those skills. Uh, and I think that's even true if the first person doesn't have that much product management knowledge or that much domain knowledge, because I think ultimately these are things you can, you know, you can pick up. Uh, I mean, as I said, <laughs> it's not that people can't listen. It's not that people can't empathize. Those, those are natural skills that we have, but some people, I don't know, some people kind of nearly unlearn those skills, I guess, or those, those, those abilities. Yeah, that's fun. Um, what is your favorite uh, tool for the discovery? My favorite discovery tool, um, I think that's probably uh, observation. So in terms of, uh, I mean, direct observation means um, having the opportunity to watch people perform a task or get a job done. And it might be that somebody uses um, uh, your product, or it might be that somebody uses a competitor product. But I think what that does is it gives people the opportunity to develop an intimate understanding of the users and customers and, and, and really um, better understand why people act in a certain way and what works for people and what, what doesn't work for people and you know, what they're struggling with, what the issues are that they're experiencing. So that probably would be one of my, my favorite um, techniques. The nice thing about it is that I think it's um, generative as much as it is um, a validation technique. So you can use direct observation to generate ideas for, say, a new products or product improvements, feature enhancements, simplifying the user experience, for instance, as well as um, in order to validate that there is a real problem for, say, a brand new product or um, that um, a product increment that you've just released to selected users and customers actually works for them as expected. So yeah, direct observation is, is, is I think, really can be really powerful. However, <laughs> having said that, many product owners I've met don't have the opportunity to, to directly connect with users and customers. And for me, that I have to say is a prerequisite for being able to make the right product decisions, at least on a continued basis. And um, I know we've, we've got lots of powerful um, analytics tools available and the amount of user data that we can collect today is just, it's just amazing. I think it's great. Uh, certainly, you know, looking back at the past 20 years, when I started out in product management, those tools either weren't available or, you know, they didn't produce, you know, not as much data near enough as they, as they offer us today. So I think that's great. But I don't think we can empathize with numbers. I don't think we can empathize with data. So I think in addition to having the data and understanding how people interact with the product um, and being able to analyze that data, that sort of interpersonal connection and you know, observation and then also talking to people, interviewing people, uh, I think that's, that's truly crucial. And you were also talking about setting the goals. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of... Uh, working with goals um, and I think particularly in product management for product people for product owners uh, goals are super valuable because uh, as product people we lack that transactional power that I mentioned earlier so you know we can't tell people what to do 
but at the same time, we need to somehow coordinate uh, the individuals. We need to align them. We need to make sure that we're moving forward in the same direction, and so we can, um, yeah, we can create value together. Um, if the development team moves forward, but the stakeholders don't, well, that's going to be difficult. If the stakeholders move one way, this development team moves another. Again, it's not going to be successful. Um, and by setting goals and collaboratively uh, doing this so you know collaborative goal setting agreeing on shared goals i think that's a great way how we can create that alignment that integration and at the same time and, and offer people i don't know a form of purpose um, or a reason for uh, moving ahead and working hard and, or working on the product and at the same time we people get the autonomy they need to get their job done i mean uh, a good example for me is the the sprint goal i mean I'd say the sprint goal should describe the benefits a sprint should create, the reason for um, running the sprint, the desired outcome. And so in that sense, it, it creates a purpose for the development team. Um, but then, you know, ideally, the sprint goal together with the high priority product backlog items should also offer autonomy. They should allow the development team then to, to go away and uh, work towards uh, the sprint goal and, um, you know, turn the product backlog items into a uh, done product increment without the product owner having to kind of, I don't know, answer questions five times a day <laughs> from every single team member. <laughs> and so that, that, that what makes, that's, that's what makes um, goals so, so attractive for me, um, you know, that they, they align people even in a context where we lack transactional power and they offer purpose and they facilitate autonomy if, if, we, um, if we use them wisely. Can you give us examples of a sprint goal? Examples of a sprint goal? Sure, yeah. So one of my, I guess, the favorite <laughs> sample product that I uh, like to use is a healthy eating app. Not sure why that is. Um, <laughs> and... Um, and so if I was working on a new healthy eating app, then one of the early sprint goals, one of the first few sprint goals might be to um, test out if um, new users are willing to share personal data such as age or weight or uh, dietary requirements, allergies with the app before using it properly. Because I might be concerned, uh, possibly quite rightly so, that uh, asking people for these pieces of information for all that data creates a barrier to adoption that, you know, people are just turned off. They've just downloaded the app. Now they're being asked all these personal questions and then they might actually then say like, oh, rather not, thank you. <laughs> However, if you don't have the relevant data, then it may be difficult for the app to um, make any meaningful personalized recommendations, which might be one of the, the, the key differentiators of the product. So that's something maybe to, to test out. Whereas then once I've uh, run a few sprints and uh, I've addressed sort of the, the risky items in the backlog and I've uh, implemented some of the, the features, at least partially, I think then the sprint goals become more around um, deciding uh, and testing out to which extent a piece of functionality or feature needs to be provided or how you can optimize it. So, you know, uh, and then I might want to work with A-B tests, for instance, whereas you know, for the, the, the type of user experience, user interaction related test um, um, question risk that I mentioned um, earlier, I might actually run a usability test or uh, I might do a product demo. But, you know, so, so those would be examples of sprint goals. And then, of course, we have now in Scrum product goals. Can you give us examples of product goals then? Oh, thank you, Susie. <laughs> Not that I was fishing for that question. Uh, so... 
I really like product goals, but then I'm biased because I've been using product goals for quite a while and I've got sort of, I guess, my own take on them. Um, so in, I think the, the Scrum framework describes product goals as a longer term objective um, that the entire Scrum team works towards. Um, and also that the product goal is something that essentially scopes the product backlog. It focuses the product backlog and all the product backlog items, if I understand this correctly, should exist in order to meet the goal. So for me, that is super exciting. First of all, because I think if you just work from sprint goal to sprint goal, sometimes, you know, that just leads to certain short-sightedness. I think it's nicer. It's nice to have like a two, three, four months goal that gives a little bit more of a longer term uh, purpose and offers some uh, continuity and, and, and continued guidance. And secondly, I think it's such a lovely idea to um, focus the uh, product backlog on a product goal because it really prevents product backlogs from growing wild and massive and huge. And, um, you know, I mean, I've seen product backlogs with thousands and thousands of items, no joke. And it's just like, I mean, those aren't backlogs, obviously, they're just wish lists. But still, um, if you say, no, we have to start with uh, a clear and agreed product goal, then, you know, those product backlogs, at least in theory, shouldn't exist. So an example of a product goal, again, for my healthy eating app might be um, to help as a sort of, you know, product goal for the very first uh, release, the MVP, the minimum viable product might be to help people uh, understand uh, their eating habits and acquire an initial user base, which would be a compound goal. So it would express the user benefit and it would express the business benefit. And again, that's my preferred way of capturing uh, product goals, but nothing that is necessarily a, a standard by any means. But yeah, I've just kind of developed a, a preference for, for those kind of product goals over the years. And then how do you measure, right? Because you said people understand uh, their habits or how they eat, right? Mm. How do you measure that thing is happening? That's absolutely right. Um, so it is nice when product goals are measurable. So I think they, they definitely should be specific and it, um, specific enough to provide uh, guidance to the stake for the stakeholders and the development teams. And uh, it, it's nice when they're measurable. So acquiring an initial user base is something that we can probably measure. We can state a clear target and say, this is how many users we want to establish. Uh, sorry, we want to acquire. And even if that's difficult, we can say, okay, you know, Two weeks after we've launched our product, we want to be, I don't know, someone in, in the top 20 of the Apple iStore or the Android App Store charts um, and, and sort of, you know, state a target that way. With uh, improving people's uh, eating habits, that's more difficult. And one way then to approach it is to break it down and say, well, maybe there's a specific aspect. And so, you know, if, if it's hard to make it um measurable, then maybe it's not specific enough. So let's maybe choose a specific aspect. So maybe it's about the main meals, or maybe it's about breakfast. Maybe it's about help people understand how healthy their breakfast is in terms of if they're consuming the right amount of calories, and if they're taking on board the right nutrients. Now that's something that we can then probably validate through some form of um, um, survey um, and see, you know, do people actually now have a, a better picture, a better understanding um, what they what they what you know if they're having any breakfast if they're having breakfast have, do they have heightened awareness <laughs> it actually appears to them oh I've skipped breakfast I don't know like five times in the last four weeks um, and do they have a better understanding of how healthy that breakfast is yeah. so that might be a, a way to to do it which which would mean that you know we'd have to iterate over the uh, protocol the initial protocol and refine it which you know is fine by me <laughs> so thank you for that question cool so. That's a product goal, right? Sprung goal. And you mentioned a couple of times the autonomy. 
who is actually coming up with, for example, the survey? Is it up to the team or is that the product owner or what's usually happening? Yeah, so I mean, I think certainly in an agile context, but I'd argue generally in a product management context, the goals that are being used should be um, set collaboratively and the stakeholders and development team members should be actively involved in choosing those goals and formulating those goals and that you know uh, for me there's some clear benefits the first one is that the goals are, are clear there's a shared understanding uh, secondly you know i can leverage as the product owner the collective knowledge of the stakeholders and development teams their expertise and thirdly when you ask people to uh, help you set goals they tend to um, support those goals more or the likelihood is that they'll support those goals so, you know, because they've been able to, to influence those goals and, and shape those goals. And when it comes then to say, oh, how do we validate that we've actually met the goal? I think that'll then depend on the goal itself. So, you know, the first thing is really to establish the goal and then to ask, how can we tell that we've met it? And, you know, if we say user acquisition is a goal and we want to acquire X amount of users, then, you know, we, we, we may want to measure how many people have registered but we may also say, well, that's not quite enough. It's not only about people who've registered, who've downloaded the app, they must have activated the app. Or we might even take this further and say, oh, it's not only about uh, people who've registered and downloaded and activated the app. Oh, no, 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 they must have also used the app for that amount of time across so many days. So, you know, daily active usage, for instance, might be another metric that we, that we would like to use. And I think for me, when, certainly when it comes to the product goals, that is... Um, you know, that decision should be should be facilitated and should be led by the product owner. So as the product owner, you know, I should be clear on, or at least I should have a good understanding how I, you know, should have, so, so first of all, you know, I, of course, you know, I should, 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 should actively shape those goals and should, you know, I shouldn't just sort of kind of facilitate that and let the stakeholders and development team members choose that, but I should really, I should have an opinion, but at the same time, uh, actively listening to uh, the other people being involved in the decision-making process. But I do want to make sure that the, the right goals are set, goals that attract as much support as possible, but also move the product forward in the right way. And then I should hopefully have the right knowledge to say, okay, now that we've established those product goals, these are the metrics uh, that help us um, understand if we've met those goals. But for me, you know, I, that'd be something I'd, I'd put on a product roadmap together with the product goals for the next, say, six to 12 months. And again, I'd, I'd like to involve the stakeholders and development team members, or at least representatives from the development teams in um, the road mapping work and run a, a collaborative road mapping workshop, be it online or on site. So, you know, everybody should understand what's on the roadmap. Ideally, everybody, you know, agrees with it or can support it, or at least doesn't object to it. Um, and, and then again, you know, we can talk about those metrics and if people have questions or if people want to challenge them, you know, that's a great opportunity to do it, to do it and, uh, and therefore hopefully to choose the right metrics. That's good. Thank you. I like the co-creation part of it, right? Because mm -hmm. that actually solves all the problems. Like we can understand or something, because if you're part of that creation process, then you quite naturally gain that understanding as well. I guess uh, our time is running uh, down. So I have a last question for you. What is the future of product management? What is the future of product management? Um, yeah, I wish I had a crystal ball. <laughs> um, so I think when I reflect on my um, on my time in product management, on my product management career, so to speak, uh, I think the the profession has changed significantly. And personally, I'd say for the better, and it's been influenced by um, 
you know, say agile development and uh, agile frameworks. It's been influenced by things like um, modern discovery practices. It's been influenced by, say, a business modeling uh, approaches. Um, just to name a few, a lean startup uh, and, and, and customer uh, development. I think those were all important influences on, in a way, um, you know, up-to-date modern uh, product management. But I think a major issue is still around empowerment. Um, and I think that also affects product owners, scrum product owners often uh, in, a, in a very significant way. So I think quite often product people don't really have the necessary authority and trust the necessary standing in the organization to really own their products um, completely and particularly make the necessary strategic decisions and you know, be in a position where what they say is, is really, truly being heard and respected by, by the stakeholders. Um, and the, the, the various reasons for this, sometimes it's with the individuals and a lack of, um, say, people skills and a lack of uh, maybe, maybe knowledge, product management knowledge or domain knowledge. Um, but uh, quite often, it's also systemic in the sense that um, you know, the organization just hasn't developed the right processes, the right tools, the right structures, the right collective behaviors in order to um, really take full advantage of um, product management and to take full advantage of uh, a product owner role. And so um, this is more like a, um, sharing, uh, I don't know, a hope rather than a prediction, but I, I do hope that we'll see some progress in that space over the next five to 10 years and that you know, and in, in 10 years time, it's not going to be such a big issue anymore, you know, empowerment and, you know, product, product, product owners, product people in general, you know, often having to kind of, kind of feel they've got to fight to get the authority that they need, but it's, it's more like a, you know, it's, it's, it's quite normal, you know, <laughs> that somebody who owns somebody who's, who's, who's called product owner actually owns the product on behalf of the company. Thank you for sharing that hope. And I do the plus one on it. I agree with that. I hope that it would be awesome because uh, that really makes a difference. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much for joining me here today. It's been my pleasure talking to you. Yeah, likewise, Susie. Thank you for having me. And in a summary, product owners need to be owning the product in its entirety, not just a feature or a component. Such product owner is not only responsible for the tactical product decisions which are captured in a product backlog, but also for more strategic product decisions about the overall business landscape, market decisions, financial forecasting, value of the product, customers, and also are able to create a clear actionable product goals. On top of that, product owners need strong leadership skills, be good at communication and have developed strong people skills. They need to collaborate with teams and stakeholders to set the goals together and help them to align. They need to create a space where people co-create things. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Agile Way podcast hosted by Zuzi Shekhova, author of the Great Scrum Master book and Agile Leader book. If you love listening to this podcast, please leave us a review. If there is any topic you are particularly interested in and would like to hear another episode on it, let me know. For more information about me and my Agile classes, visit our website sochova.com, S-O-C-H-O-V-A.com. Thank you for listening.